Well, it's good to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. Uh, as I begin and prepare to, to preach this morning, I have to let you know that I am uh, entering into a new milestone as a parent this morning. I now, officially, as of today, have a teenager in the house. Yes, this is while we're preaching from Job. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, Micah, my oldest, is 13 today, about 8.30 tonight, technically. So we're proud of you, buddy. Happy birthday, and uh, thankful for your grace. God's grace to us and you and our life and our home. Uh, but looking forward to sharing with you uh, this morning <clears throat> from uh, the book of Job. And so I did not want to steal the joy from Pastor Ken of uh, continuing on in Revelation. I didn't want to steal his joy of being able to preach uh, there. And so uh, he's watching. Uh, he's away. Many people are fall break on, away on trips. He's away. We hope you're having a restful time. I know he's watching because he's got to see what kind of mess he might have to clean up next week when he gets back uh, <clears throat> from what happens here. But, but thankful and uh, to have the opportunity to preach uh, this morning and share uh, from God's Word with you. So uh, in a few moments, we will read from Job chapter 1 and, uh, and look there and focus our attention there um, in our time together. In 2005, Carl Truman wrote an essay entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? What Can Miserable Qu- Christians Sing? Uh, in this particular essay, <clears throat> he was lamenting Uh, the absence of lament in modern evangelicalism, and also critiquing it. At one point, he wrote the following. He said, I would, however, like to make just one observation. The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, have almost entirely dropped from view in contemporary Western evangelical worship scene. He said, I'm not certain about why this is, but I have an instinctive feel that it is, has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentation, feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. He then writes, Perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament, but then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is in terms of numbers, influence, and spiritual maturity. Perhaps, and this is more likely, it has drunk so deeply the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing. Cries of lament and sadness is what he's speaking of. Yet, he continues, the human condition is a poor one, and Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country should know this. A diet of unremittently jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party. A theologically incorrect and pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. And I'll end with this from him. Has an unconscious belief that Christianity is, or at least should be, all about health, wealth, and happiness, silently corrupted the content of our worship. Now remember, the title of the essay is, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? 
So thankfully we are a part of a church and a ministry where we have a culture that knows what miserable Christians can sing and is well acquainted with psalms of lament. And we read from those and sing those songs together, rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who are weeping. But Christian, do you know or have you known significant hardships in your life? Is there a sense in you that somehow you are less than as a Christian because of your hardships? Do you struggle or feel less than because you aren't, as one song wrote, happy all the day? In light of this cultural tendency, what are we to do with the complexities that are in Scripture? What are we to do with the Psalms, as Truman mentions? What are we to do with Ecclesiastes? What are we to do with Romans 8.17 that says, yes, we will be glorified with our Savior, provided that we suffer with Him first? What are we to do with Revelation that we're studying together as a church right now? So this morning, I want us to turn our attention to Job. And the reason for this is that many of the themes that we're unpacking in Revelation together at a high level, we see unfold specifically in the life of Job. We could zoom in on this life and we can see some of these themes that we've looked at at a high level up in the air, if you will, We can see them down on the ground in the raw face-to-face encounter. My hope is that this brief look at Job's life will challenge, encourage, and even correct in our lives what, uh, as we seek to live faithful to our Lord in this world. Now, I know this is an ambitious task, and I say a brief look. The life of Job is 42 chapters, so surely uh, three hours is a brief look. Um, I don't know why you're laughing. I'm not joking. Uh, I am joking. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know you would just leave. So, uh, <clears throat> so here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing. As we look here at Job, I, I'm, I'm going to just be completely honest with you, which hopefully I would since I'm preaching. What we're doing here is just a sketch. We're just sketching this out. Uh, we're going to give a, a brief outline. We'll spend most of our time in the bookends, the beginning and the end. Uh, We'll talk about the middle and why it's so important, but we're just sketching out many of the themes, and we'll just introduce them to you, and really, it'll be most helpful if you'll sit down and unpack some of these things, the thing that hits, strikes hardest for you uh, over lunch with a friend, even today, or in base group uh, this evening with those from your fellowship, from the fellowship here, as we just talk about these things, and so what we'll do Uh, Sometimes as we're preaching here, we'll have a lot of application at the end. I'm just going to intertwine the application as we move through. I'll I'll basically just say time out. Let's stop for a moment and think about this a little bit further about how it applies to our life right now. Okay? Sound good? Is everybody ready to go? All right. Job chapter 1. If you have your Bible open, if you don't, slide near someone who does, and uh, and we'll look together because we'll do some page turning here in just a few moments. So, Job chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. Uh, We're going to read that together, and then we'll go back and unpack some of the verses that precede that, which would be 1 through 5 for those of you who aren't good at math. Um, So let's look at Job 1. Let's go verses 6 through 12 together. This is God's Word. Now there 
was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you, put, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your, is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace and your mercy this morning. We know it well already as we have been greeted with a new day, breath in our lungs, hearts beating, the ability to come, to gather together, to worship, to sing of your grace to us in Christ Jesus. Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, we ask for your grace that it would be preached and proclaimed rightly, and Father, that we would hear it rightly. Not just hear words this morning, but but hear your word and believe it, that it would, in fact, take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, let's back up first and look at the first part uh, of this chapter. Let's talk about the man, Job. Uh, there is no PowerPoint. I know that's a surprise to you. Um, <clears throat> but um, so let's, let's just look first at the man, Job. Verses 1 through 5. Let's get a little bit of information about who he was. Verse 1 introduces him. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. That's repeated later, right, by the Lord himself, who feared God and turned away from evil. So we're not real sure where Uz was. It it doesn't really matter, to be honest with you. We're told what we know, what we really need to know right here in the text. We believe the Job to be somewhere around the time of the patriarchs. The reason for that is we'll see in a moment he's going to make sacrifices. It seems to be before the priesthood is established. He's making sacrifices on the behalf of his family. But again, we don't know specifically the time in which he lived. And again, that's okay, but the indication seems to be somewhere among the time of the patriarchs. And then we're told that he's blameless, that he's upright that he feared God, and he turned away from evil. Now, what you need to understand is that when we talk about blameless here, he's speaking of, he's comparatively blameless. He's not perfect, but he's comparatively blameless. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, of an example on the whole other side of the spectrum. It wasn't that no other city had sin in it and that no other city was evil, just comparatively, though that was, was the worst, right? And so Job, on this hand, is compared to others. He is a man who is blameless. He is above reproach, if we think about some of the language of the New Testament. And there is no scandalous sin in his life that would bring reproach upon the Lord, and that he seeks to walk as a man of integrity. Uh, That would be one good way just to sum it up. He is what you see is what you get. The outside and the inside are the same. There's, There's not this big margin or gap in his life 
uh, between who he really is and who he presents himself to be. That's what integrity is, right? He's integrated. And so we see this to be the case about Job. The reason for this is that he fears God and he turns away from evil. And so then we're told a little bit about his family. As we're given his character, we're told about his family. They're born him seven sons and three daughters. And then we're told about his wealth. From there, it says that he, had, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, five female donkeys, and many male servants. Uh, from, and it says, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. So not only is he a man of good character, he's a man of great standing. He has tremendous wealth, is what this means. Uh, and he is seen as to be a man who is tremendously blessed with a full family of seven sons and three daughters, so much so that he's known in the East. You can go and read in Job 29 later, and you can see, we may mention it briefly, but Job speaks of how others viewed him in Job 29 and his lament. And you can see, uh, he says that even other dignified people covered their, their faces, their mouths when they saw him, that they treated them with great respect. So you can see of the kind of man he was and the standing that he had, uh, in his community and in this region, uh, is what it says here. And then verse 4, look at this, says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He'd rise early in the morning, and he'd offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that... My children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. So we see that Job is an upright man. What you don't need to read into this is that these were some sort of uh, scandalous parties. They were just holding feasts. And Job says he offers sacrifices on behalf of his children because it may have been, right? It says, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So there's no gross manifestation externally of sin going on. This is why he's using this language. They may have sinned in their hearts and cursed God, and thus he offers sacrifices. Now, so what we see is that Job is an upright man. He's a wealthy man, and he has a great family and a great name among those in his community and in his region. And then verses 6 through 12 that we just read, I really titled that a, a mysterious providence, comma, what Job doesn't know, right? What you've got to keep in mind as we walk through Job and think about Job is Job's never let in on what we just read together uh, in 6 through 12. He's never told about this conversation that the Lord has with Satan. And so what we also need to know that is very clear in the text and is clear again in uh, chapter 2 is what we've been seeing throughout Revelation. The Lord sets the parameters here. Just as Pastor Ken said last week, and he referenced Job in the sermon, there is no dualism going on here. This is no contest between good and evil. There, there is no contest between the Lord. The Lord alone is God. There is no other, right? And so the Lord is, sets the parameters and says, you can't touch him, right? And then in chapter 2, when he comes back, we'll look at it in a moment, he says, well, if you'll, if you'll strike him, then he'll curse you. And God says, yo, but you cannot take his life. And, and there's, there's no question, there's no contest 
between the Lord and Satan. Satan's only allowed to do what the Lord would allow him to do. And so here uh, in uh, chapter 6 through 12, let me just sum this up. What we read together, there's another thing that you really need to notice. It says that Satan's going to and fro. And then verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? God's the one that puts Job forward. This is very important as you think through uh, the rest of the book as well. So it's the Lord who puts Job forward. Why? He puts him forward because of what we've already been introduced to in verses 1 through 5. He says, there's none like him on earth. He's a blameless and upright man. And he fears God and turns away from evil. This is repeated. And so it is the Lord himself that puts Job forward and says, have you considered him? And now, what does Satan do? Satan says, uh, does Job fear God for no reason? Look, he's got it pretty good. That's what he's saying. Look at his life. Of course, of course, he does this. He's, he's got it really good. If we were to sum it up, what's going on is, take away the gifts and he will curse the giver. That's what's going on here. That's, that's what Satan's saying. He's saying, take away the gifts and he'll surely curse the giver. And so the Lord says, go. Uh, and then you can look at the rest of the chapter, and what we see there is an unpacking. Let's just walk through it, because it is told in a unique way, I think, for the reason that it would strike us, that we would, we would stand in Job's position and we would understand. So if we read through this, notice what's going on. Uh, we're, not, we're not given the details, right, of how all these things happen. We're just told what happens. Right? We're, we're, not, we're, not see, we're seeing all this from Job's perspective. That's what I'm saying. We, we don't, we're not introduced to his kids and, and, and all of that. We're just told this from Job's perspective. He's there, and he's getting this information. So notice how it flows, starting in verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So all servants but one are, are killed, right? and this part of his flock is gone. You could just say this part in modern-day language of his bank account is gone. right? The, these investments, this wealth is gone. But notice what happens in verse 16. While yet, so this is rapid succession. While yet he was speaking, there came another. The fire of God fell from heaven and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So here's another portion gone. Servants and flock, gone. All right? Then notice verse 17. While yet he was speaking, there came another. Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18, while yet he was speaking, there came another. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, this is extreme, is it not? I think there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this, that this suffering and what Job has just experienced is so heavy and excessive. 
The reason is because when you and I suffer and we experience hardships, we are always prone, please hear this, we are always prone to the temptation of thinking that we are exceptional. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? Nobody knows the sorrows I've gone through. There's a sense in which those who are immediately around you, that may very well be true. I'm not making light of that at all. Sometimes the greatest grace we need when we experience hardship is dealing with terrible comforters who surround us, which Job knows well too, by the way, if you read the rest of the book. But Job's suffering is, is so excessive that none of us can say, well, nobody knows what I've been through. Because Job knows something of it. He just lost everything. The only things that we know, his wife is still here, and just wait, it gets worse. His wife is still here, and he still has his health. Right? But this is not over yet. Friends, we are tempted. Like this, I mean, you, you think about the, the succession of how quick this is in one day. Now, you think you've had a bad day, right? This is awful. As I'm thinking through and, and meditating on this, this, this section of Scripture this week, just thinking about what Peter writes, right? Do not be surprised when trials come upon you. As something strange is happening to you. But do we not do that? Right? Like walk outside and, and you got a flat tire and you're running late for work. Like, oh, come on. Like seriously? Really? Like right now? I can't believe this. Am I the only one? I guess so. Right? <laughs> now you're just laughing at me. Before you had the chance to laugh with me. Now you're just going to laugh at me. You, know, you wake up and, and it's the big week. All kinds of things are going on. And one of the kids has a fever. Ah, seriously, come on. Like this week, last week, sure, I'd have taken, I'd have taken a week of vacation. That would have been great. But this week, I can't do this this week. And these are more, these are mild episodes, right? What about the weightier ones? The ones that are almost unbearable. But we're told clearly we're, we're going to know hardship in Scripture. Now, I think there's two things that we need to consider if we take a quick time out. First, we need to notice that Job is upright even in his prosperity. Right? Job is living as a man of integrity even when times are good. Now, that's significant. Years ago, I read D.A. Carson's book, Meditations on Suffering, How Long, O Lord? And he says in there, the, the, the question is not, will we suffer? That's not the question. We know that, right? We've already referenced several scriptures, James 1. It's not if, but when. Um. He says, the question is not, will, will we suffer? The question is, when we suffer, will there be faith? And he says in there that, that we are much better off if we're prepared 
as much as we can be. And anytime you endure suffering, you always say, I could never have been prepared for this. But the more we are settled in the goodness of God and who he is prior to suffering, the far better we'll be able to weather that storm in the midst of it. It's really hard to hear new truths in the midst of suffering. And and, and so what I want you to see is that, that Job is living uprightly in the midst of it. And, and, and what's going on here is that this is going to be a trial that if the gifts are taken away, will he curse the giver? Okay. But what I want you to see at the same time is, as one commentator points out, the opposite test may be just as effective. That is going from poverty to riches. Have you thought about that? To lose everything to go from riches to poverty can be a test. But so could it be a test to go from poverty to riches. Only need to go read Agor in the Proverbs to learn about that. That we could be tempted to forget God. Think, I'm doing pretty good. I'll call you when I need you. Yet, at the same time, to lose everything. And then to say, how could you? How could you? These are things that we need to think about. That even in times of plenty, do we still recognize the poverty of our own soul? Job did. How about us? Now, let's look at Job's response in verse 20. Then Job rose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I've came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22, we're told in all this, Job did not charge God with wrong. Now, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. Again, it's not the word you want to hear when you're in the midst of suffering. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them. To present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said, Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand, you touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Now once again we see two important things here. One, God sets the parameters. Satan has no power that can match the Lord's. Second, at this point, Satan's off stage. We won't hear from him again. We won't see him again. It's not a major factor in this story. Now, another thing that I think that we need to think about is we another timeout that we should take quickly is we think about this going back and forth. Meditating on this passage this week, one thing that really struck me 
and this is going to sound strong, but I think it needs to, encouragement for you and I is don't be satanic. Oh, yeah, we would never do that. Hold on a second. Don't be like Satan. He's the accuser, right? He's the ultimate cynic. Notice what happens here. There's no admission, oh, yeah, you were right, Lord. You're right. I mean, notice the exchange and, 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 and notice how it goes. The Lord said, have you considered Job? And he still holds fast his integrity. And then look at, look at four. Just look at the irreverence of how he speaks to the Lord. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. There's no admission. Yeah, you were right. You're right. All that he has, it's just, it's just quick. It's, it's accusative. You take this and he'll curse you. You take this, and he'll curse you. And he said, so why out of that would you encourage us? Don't be like Satan. We, we all know that. No, no kid is saying that. And I want to be like Satan when I grow up. That's not happening. But notice the gross irreverence. Notice the pride before the Lord. Notice the, I know, you take away this, and he'll curse you. You spared his body. Take his health. He'll curse you. Now, how does that show up in our lives? Well, when we speak in an accusative manner about others, we're acting just like Satan. And, 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 and here's the ways that it, that it shows up. Did you see their new car? Now, what's behind that is I can't believe they would drive a car like that. Right? I can't believe that. Did you hear where they went on vacation? Can you believe that? That's what's, that's what's behind those kinds of things. Did you see the house that they bought? Right. The, 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 here, here's what's going on in those moments. It's an attitude that says, and sometimes we just say this outright, I just call them like I see them. Do you see the gross pride in that statement? Because that statement assumes that we have full and complete knowledge of everything. Now, nobody wants to raise their hand here, but we're all guilty of this. We all adopt an attitude like this at times. Thinking on this passage this week, I was reminded of two conversations that I've had recently with my wife where I embodied this attitude. Just grouchy, you know? Just grumpy. Not willing to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Don't worry, it was none of y'all. Not willing to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Just had this attitude. Thankfully, I didn't say it out loud, but I harbored it in my heart. I'm just calling them like I see them. What a jerk. That's what I'm being. I'm being satanic. This is, this is the enemy's tactic, and he loves for us to join in on it, especially in the church against one another. I'm not calling you to be gullible. I'm not calling you to be afraid to call out sin. I'm calling you to be humble. Because God gives grace to the humble, but he is opposed to the proud. And may we not be marked by such an attitude in the church. Now here we see that Satan is allowed to strike Job. 
Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with the loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery and he scraped himself as he sat in the ashes. The picture seems to indicate that he's, he's in the trash heap. I mean, he's just outside of community at this point. He's sitting uh, in, in, in the dump, really, in ashes, picking at his scabs. I know it's a, a terrible picture. But again, think about the heights of where he was and now where his suffering has brought him. And I told you earlier that he still had his wife. And if you don't know the story, I said it gets worse. Then look at verse 9. Then his wife said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Just curse God and die. That's really not what you want to hear from your spouse in a time like that. And he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive the good from God and not receive the evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job still maintains his integrity. He still holds fast. Now, we're going to have to pick up the pace here, unless you're not hungry yet. And let's look briefly at at the end of chapter 2 and then in chapter 3, and then we're going to do some pretty big summaries. But here at the end of three, we see that now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliaphaz, the Timonite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices, and they wept, and they wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. This is probably the best thing that they do in the book. It's just the ministry of presence and, and, and silence, right? Because it kind of goes downhill once they start talking later. And we see this, and I just want you to recognize that there is such time for us to come along beside others and just be present. There is, is a time, there's, I know there's this weight in us when others are suffering to feel like that we've just got to say something just groundbreaking, right? And just just drop the truth on them that's just going to change everything. Friends, typically when we do that, we increase pain and not help. Especially in in the moments of of when suffering is so raw. Just to come along beside us, sometimes the best thing that you can say is, I am so sorry. And just weep with those who weep. I'm not saying there's never a time to talk. But what I'm saying is we, we don't like this uncomfortableness to sit with someone. We, we want to fix things. And sometimes we just can't. Sometimes we just have to sit. Christopher Ash says it this way in his commentary. He says, there's a version of Christianity around that is shallow, trite, superficial, and happy-clappy. It's the kind of Christianity that has... As been said, would have had Jesus singing a chorus at the grave of Lazarus instead of weeping. 
We've all met it, this easy triumphalism, where we just think, you know, let's just get you past this and everything will be fine. Let's get you back to being, to being happy. And sometimes the greatest thing we can do is come alongside someone and just have the ministry of presence. To be able to say, I'm sorry. I know I don't understand. I'm perplexed too. There's this other big temptation where we try to, where we, there's a subtle temptation to make it about us, right? When we're trying to comfort someone else and we, and we do the comparative thing and, and, we're, and, and it's good intention, don't get me wrong. We're reaching for the, for the closest association that we have and before we know it, now we're just talking about us and we should be caring for them. You been there? Yeah, that's kind of like when, oh, friends, sometimes the best thing to do is just to, to be quiet, and just pray for comfort and pray for wisdom so that you'll know when you need to talk and what you should say. See, often, I remember sitting in a class with Ed Welch and he, and he said, he said, the, the challenge is not that you'll, that you'll say something unorthodox. He said, I'm not worried about most of you saying something that, that's not biblically right. He says, the challenge is speaking the well-timed word in season. It, it's saying the right thing at the right time. That's the challenge when wisdom is needed. And so if we were to try to unpack from, from here, just, just quickly, we'll, we'll come back to chapter 3. If we were to try to really unpack the, the theology of Job's friends, it, it, a lot of it's really good, to be honest with you. A lot of it, I mean, it's orthodox, right? But there's some problems with it. If we were to summarize it, we could say, they're saying things like God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good. Amen, amen, and amen, right? Uh, therefore, God always punishes the wicked and, re- and rewards the righteous. Here's the problem. Now. That, that's their theology. Is that, that it all happens now, right now. They have no category for innocent suffering. They have no category for innocent suffering. They have no category for waiting. And they have no category for mystery. See, they're so sure of themselves that what Job needs to do is just repent there's some sort of sin going on, and then he'll be restored. And the one reason why this book is so helpful, especially for those of you who, who, have been, who have been in great seasons of suffering, and even those of you who haven't, it's coming, so you should just read this now, is because so much, this is 42 chapters, and the whole middle of this book is just full of perplexity. I don't understand. I don't understand. See, the great irony here in Job is that Job is suffering because he is blameless. He's more righteous than his friends, and his friends are thinking he's suffering because there's some sort of hidden sin in his life. That's the great irony. But the, the whole reason that he's put forward is for the glory of God. Because God's saying, you know what, accuser, you're wrong. There is one who you take away the, get, the gifts and he will still say, blessed be the name of the Lord and still praise the giver. So time out. Actually, let's look at, at verse 3 and then we'll take a time out. Chapter 3. It's not verse 3, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth he cursed the day of his birth. And what you're going to notice is he's about to unleash some heavy lament. 
So most of us are okay with his statements at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is where we get uncomfortable. This is where we get uncomfortable when we're around other people who are struggling and lamenting. This is what he says. With the day on which I was born and the night that was said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let the night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, I mean, let those who curse it, excuse me, let those curse it who curse the day, and let them rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark, and let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of morning, because it did not shut doors of my mother's womb, nor hide troubles from me. This is a long lament of, I wish I had never been born. And let the day of my birth, let it be dark, and never see light. This Leviathan in here, I mean, the bottom line is we don't know. So there's your, your question of what we don't know. The best guess that I have for you is that in Canaanite mythology, uh, there would be those, look at what he says, let those curse it who curse the day. Uh, that Leviathan was this uh, seven-headed creature that would eat the sun. And he's saying, hey, if that's possible, I'd love for somebody to do that with my birthday. I'd love for somebody to, to conjure that thing up to come and just eat that day. And so he's saying, I wish I'd never been born. And you can just continue reading on uh, in, in this lament that he pours out. And so I, I, think, I think the question that, that we need to think about this morning is, is, A, do we have space for lament? Do we, do we want to offer comfort to those? Are we willing to do the hard ministry? And I would love to give you some practical things that you can do with others. We don't have time for that. You can take the foundations class, 301. I have the privilege of teaching, and that's what we talk about is how to help others. And so we'll talk about practical ways to do that. But here, let's focus on this for just a moment. Have you or do you ever find yourself perplexed? In your suffering, have you been there? I know that God is good, but I just don't understand. Well, friends, I have. I have. September the 1st was the six-year anniversary of my mother's death. I watched her for eight years suffer with cancer. And I won't go into the details of it now, but it was horrible. And I still don't understand. But just like I was able to say, just like she was able to say in the midst of it, I'm confident that the Lord is good and that he's in control and that he's going to right every wrong. But in the meantime, I'm perplexed. June of 2007, I, I drove to a friend's house weeping so hard that I almost couldn't keep the car on the road as I just heard that a good friend of mine had died in a car accident. And I cried out to God, why of all the terrible dads in the world, why did you take a good dad? You've been there? To quote a song lyric, we don't, we, we just, we, we're perplexed. Why does the good man die and the bad man thrive? Job asked these questions throughout this book. 
And, 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 we, and we meet perplexity. And so what I want you to know is that, that if, you, if you find yourself there, you're in good company, not because of me, but let me give you some examples. Consider Charles Spurgeon. Many of you know Spurgeon. You've heard of Spurgeon. And probably the worst thing you should ever do is read sermons of Spurgeon while you're preaching because everybody will realize how bad your preaching is compared to his, right? There's a reason why Spurgeon's called the Prince of Preachers. But Michael Reeves, a historian, he introduces us to a, a, this becoming more well-known, and it needs to be well-known, but a little-known struggle of Spurgeon throughout his life. Listen to what he says. At age 22, as pastor of a large church with twin babies at home to look after, he was preaching to thousands in Surrey Gardens Music Hall when pranksters yelled out, Fire! Starting a panic to exit the building, which killed seven and left 28 severely injured. His, Spurgeon, his mind was never the same. His wife, Susanna, wrote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter on her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. Spurgeon would later write on the following days of that tragedy, I am so unmanned by it. Someone watched me, for they did not know what would happen to me. On another occasion, he wrote, I had almost lost my reason for some three weeks. Another theologian points out that during this season, even the very sight of a Bible made Charles cry. Spurgeon preaching before thousands, pranksters yell out fire. He felt responsible for the whole incident, that there was death, that there was severe injury. He wrote honestly of his suffering. He never fully recovered from this. He was 22 when this happened, early in his ministry. He wrote honestly of his suffering. Listen to what he said. He says, I become so perplexed that I sink in heart and dream that it were better that I'd never been born. Does that sound familiar? He said, I dreamed that it had been better that I'd never been born than to have been called to bear all this multitude on my heart. In Psalm 88, one of the darkest psalms of lament, verse 6 says this, You have put me in the depths of the pit, the regions of dark deep. In a a sermon, Spurgeon said this on that verse, and I quote, The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there is bottomless pits. The flesh can only bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. This is a man well acquainted with grief. Consider the Apostle Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. See, this this is the perplexity that, that, that we don't always understand, but we know that God is good. See, Christian, if you ever find yourself perplexed in times of suffering, you are in good company. Now, if you were to continue on reading throughout this book, we're running short on time. But you would see and encounter this perplexity over and over and over. But what I want you to do is turn to Job 38. And as Job works through and he, and he as maintains his innocence with his friends as they relentlessly seek to get him to confess any hidden sin, whatever it is that has brought this upon him, he speaks out and demands that, that God answer. And God give him a hearing. We see that in the midst of this that, that God does answer 
but it's not quite the way Job expected. In verse 38, it says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know or stretched the line upon it. On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with its doors, and when it burst out from the wound, when it made cl- and when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness a swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, "Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed." Now the Lord is is asking Job some questions now. He's like, Job, you've had questions for me. Let me ask you some questions. And, and, and what the Lord is saying is, is, Job, do you see that you can't fully understand everything? That you were not there in the beginning. That you were not the one who laid the foundations of the earth. That you were not the one, you're not infinite. You didn't create all of this. And and, and here's the bottom line, friends. In answering Job's why question, God doesn't answer Job's whys, but with one answer. God's answer to Job is God himself. That, That God reveals himself to Job, and Job sees who God is and who he isn't, And by extension, we're asked the same questions. You and I, you can read on through 38, and you read as as God just continues to ask Job and says, Job, were you there? Are you infinite? Is it not possible that there are some things that you can't fully comprehend? of understanding my ways, and that the secret things, if we quote other scripture, belongs to the Lord. And then look, Job is sobered. He's sobered by this, and his question really becomes this. Look at what happens in 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job's humbled in this moment. He's awed. Now, I've mentioned Job 29 earlier. Look, look at the man who's, who's humbled by suffering and then humbled by the Lord. In Job 29, he says, When I'm out at the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed. 
Now notice this, Job saying this was me when I entered in the city, royalty hushed their mouths. Now here he is laying his hand over his mouth and hushing his mouth before the Lord God Almighty. And, and, he, and he's basically saying, I'm, I'm satisfied with you and who you are. See, I'd heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Look at verse at chapter 42. As God continues on, after Job says this, he continues, and then Job answers again in 42. 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And here Job is confessing to the Lord, you're, you're enough. You're enough. What I want you to see is that even in the midst of this, this perplexity, Job's still not told about this conversation at the beginning of, of what his suffering, why the Lord allowed it. That through Job, God is glorified, that his people will still worship and glorify him even if they don't have the good things that he gives. What I think that one thing that we really, really need to learn from this, and this is my last quick timeout, is that we have to beware of what Mark Dever calls pseudo-faith. That there is a pseudo-faith that trusts God because it understands. It trusts God because it says, I can see how God used that in my life. Friends, that's a wonderful gift when we see it. I'm not saying that that never happens. There are times that, that there are things that we don't understand in the moment that after we've gone through them, we've seen how the Lord has worked. And we're like, wow, I see how the Lord used it. I'm thankful for that. We could all list off. But there are times when we go through things and we come out the other side and we still don't understand what the Lord was doing. And there is this pseudo faith that says, I understand when I trust when I can understand. What it does is it puts us above the Lord. And it says, my knowledge is ultimate. And so if I get it, then I'm good with it. But if I don't, then this isn't working for me anymore. And I'm going to go somewhere else. And friends, we have to beware of this, of this pseudo faith because there are times when we come out the other side and we still don't understand and all we have to do in those moments is to rest on the peace that surpasses understanding. As Paul said in Philippians, that's where that gets really real. And it's not just a cute memory verse anymore. It's like, I don't understand, but I still have peace in who God is and the goodness of who he is and that peace takes me past my understanding to where I can still trust in him. That's true faith. That's true faith. And so brothers and sisters, beware of the pseudo-faith. That Job's answer, that God's answer to Job is that the who of God is greater than our suffering. The who of God is greater than the why of our suffering. The who eclipses the why. That the Lord is enough. Brothers and sisters, in the, in the midst of this, when, when God gives this second call, 
there in verse 40, then the Lord answered out of the whirlwind, dressed for action, his same address. And he asked him, look at verse 9 of 40, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. See, here's where the humility comes in. Pour out your overflowings of anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase them. Look on everyone who is proud and bring them low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all in, in the dust, hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge you that your own right hand can save you. See, this is the essence of it all. He says, Job, can, can you bring down the proud? Can you bring justice where injustice reigns? Job, is your hand, is your mighty right hand strong enough to save you? He says, if you can do these things, then I will acknowledge you and that your own right hand can save you. And friends, that's where we come to the end here, is that we have to recognize that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot. We cannot bring justice where there's injustice fully and finally. We cannot bring down the proud, and we cannot ultimately save ourselves by our own mighty right hand. But there is one who can. See, there's a true and better Job. There's one who is truly, completely, the innocent sufferer who never sinned, who was the perfect spotless lamb of God, who came to earth and who took on sin and death. Hebrews 2 says it this way, he himself likewise partook of these things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's Satan, the enemy, that is the devil, and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, the good news is, is that there is one who's better than Job, who's truly an innocent sufferer, who came and bore the wrath of God and defeated both sin and death and offers to us a hope that cannot be shaken. In the midst of all this perplexity, there is one who is the Alpha and the Omega. He gets the final say, and he is the one who will set all things right and make all things new. See, in this life, we may have much perplexity, but there's coming a day when all of it will be resolved in the end, when Christ sets all things right, and everything evil will truly be undone on that day. So the call for us is to maintain in that faith now, the call for us who don't know Christ is to turn to him. And can I just ask one quick question, if you've hung with me this long. If you're here this morning you say, you know, I'm not a Christian. Can I just ask you, are you ever troubled by suffering? And do you ever ask why? Because if you do, you may not be as agnostic as you think you are. You may not be as atheistic as you think you are. Because if all this is meaningless and we're just all results of some grand cosmic accident and none of this is going anywhere, then there's no reason to ask why to start with. But if you're asking why, you're searching for an answer, and there is an answer in Christ Jesus. And I'd love to talk to you about that in a minute. Please come find me and let's have a conversation. In the midst of this suffering, Job had this hope. In Job 19.25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last... He will stand upon earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see him. Well, friends, in the end of Revelation, we're going to see that as we continue studying. 
that we shall see his face. That's where we're going. If we look at the end of Job, you would see that Job is restored. Double everything except for his children. People ask why. Well, because his first children, they're not non-existent. They're with the Lord. And so he has 20 children in all that he will be in the new heavens and new earth with. That would be my answer to that question. So let's end with this. As we look at that, I believe that's foreshadowing of heaven and Job's uh, account there in 42. But let's end uh, with Spurgeon and what has been a very, very long sermon that I'll never live down. Uh, I think I just beat one of the most recent records. But let's end with this quote. Yet Spurgeon uh, didn't, he didn't only speak honestly about the difficulty of depression. He pointed others to the hope. This is what he said. Personally, I also bear witness that it has been to me in seasons of great pain, superlatively great comfort to know that in every pain which racks his people, the Lord Jesus is a fellow, has a fellow feeling. We are not alone, for one, unlike, um, one like unto the Son of Man walks in the furnace with us. What Spurgeon is saying is that Christ is well afflicted with our grief. As one of the Puritans says, he calls us through no darker door than he's gone through before himself. And this is how Spurgeon closed. Should the power of depression be more than ordinary, think not that all is over with your usefulness. Cast not away your confidence, for it hath great recompense and reward. Even if the enemy's foot be on your neck, expect to rise and overthrow him. Cast the burden of the present, along with the sin of the past, and fear the future upon the Lord, who forsakes not his saints. Live day by day, I, hour by hour. Put no trust in frames or feelings. Care more for a grain of faith than a ton of excitement. Trust in God alone. Between this and heaven, there may be rougher weather yet, but it is all provided for by our covenant head. Father, we ask for your grace and mercy that as we endure hardships and suffering, that we would do it in faith that even when we're perplexed, that we would cling to the rock of ages that was cleft for us. Father, we pray for those, even now, who are enduring great hardship. Lord, that they would hear only what needs to be heard this morning, that they'd be nourished, and that there would be a grain of faith that would remain in them, and that you would bring them all the way home. Through many toils and troubles, they have already come. Father, would you just... Bring them to yourself in your grace. Lord, we pray for those who don't yet know Christ. That today would be the day of salvation. That they would stop, even this morning, ask someone sitting near them, come talk to someone they've seen up front, and ask even hard questions, and that we would labor together in the truth, and that you would bring them to yourself. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.